0: Right.
1: Great afternoon. You are in the fast lane with Sarah Jane and my guest today Laverne Gordon. Laverne is the author of The Legacy He Left Me, a speaker, a survivor and the founder of Love Life Now Foundation. It's a nonprofit dedicated to improving the lives of victims and survivors of domestic violence. Welcome Laverne.
0: Thank you for having me Sarah. It's great to be here.
1: So today we're going to have the Laverne and Sarah show. We're not Laverne yeah. and Shirley. Exactly. <laughs> so Laverne and Sarah are going to dive in um October is domestic violence awareness month. Correct. And Laverne and I got connected via a mutual friend which is kind of um interesting, but I looked I looked you up and I'm purely fascinated with you because I have not read the book yet because I I I wanted to hear your story before I read the book. And, but I was looking at the cover of the book and looking at the cover of the book and looking at you now, my goodness, you you are inspirational.
0: Man, I appreciate that big time. Um, That is so humbling to hear because, you know, when you get to the other side of what this issue looks like, um, many times it's because people, have a very hard time of finding their voice, and many don't go on to ever find it. It's just because that they've escaped or left, and that's it. Um, I'm gonna do my best to just deal with everything that happened to me. Some push it to the side, some never deal with what's happened. And I am just incredibly grateful to, to be on this pathway. Um, because I know what it's like to, to be in the same position that I just mentioned um, and to not have your voice and to have it taken away to begin with. It's really hard. So thank you for that. I really appreciate you.
1: Tell me a little bit about your background.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned I'm a, a two-time survivor of this issue. I'm a child witness of, of domestic violence growing up in Trinidad. Um, I lived with my, my parents uh, who... Unfortunately, my father brutally abused our mother. And it was our complete normal where he did it in front of us. He used things like machetes on her, um, beer bottles that he would stab her with at times, um, beat her in front of our house in public, uh, inside of the house in front of us. And there were five children. Um, I was the middle of that, those five children, and my two older siblings by the time I came around um, were seven years apart from me. They were two years apart, but I was seven years apart. And so at six, seven, eight years old, I'm watching them get the brunt of the child abuse that he inflicted on them as well. And I kept saying to myself, I didn't want any of what they were getting, but I also would never let anybody treat me the way that he treated her. I saw him as the more domineering, powerful person in the relationship, the dynamic. Um, He was well-read, articulate, well-spoken, the only one in his family at the time to go to college, um, and this is this is Trinidad in the eighties, right? Um, so it was a big deal. Uh, then we had my mother, who was com- completely financially dependent on him, um, you know, completely submissive in every sense of the word, um, completely weak when it came to you know, standing up for herself. And this is what I took away at six, seven, eight years old. Again, based on what the relationship looked like. So by the time I was 15, my father um, allowed me, the only child out of the five, to migrate to the States to finish high school. So I came to live with my grandparents. They saw potential in me. He saw potential in me. As I had said, I wanted none of the child abuse that my older siblings were getting. So I did exceptionally well in school. I did everything opposite of the things that they were getting beat for because I didn't want to get any beatings. So by the time I was 15, he said, okay, you go, You, you, you soar. And, you know, I went on a student visa, came to Boston, Massachusetts, stayed with my grandparents. And by 1996, I had to go back to the the island to get my permanent residency status at the time. That being said, we're all now older. You know, my older siblings are older. We're older, my younger brothers and I. And we're all not standing for our father to put his hands on our mother. And we let him know that. We said, you can say what you want to her, right? And at the time, we didn't understand what verbal abuse was, what emotional abuse was. We knew physicality, um, the things that he was doing was wrong. But we were like, okay, y- you can say and you can verbally abuse her. Again, we didn't know that what that was, but you don't get to touch her. You don't get to hit on her. And over the next two years, I realized, he realized that, I, that he was losing power and control over her because we were standing up, right? Um, and so, Two years later, my grandparents, again, had filed my permanent residency, but then my mother, they also filed for her and my two younger brothers. And so my father finally let our mother go, migrate to the States. We all are living with our, with my grandparents. And I started going to um, a school called Suffolk University at Nights for advertising and marketing. I got an entry-level job in corporate America. Things were fantastic. I thought I was on my way to being more like our father in the more respectful and domineering setting. Um, And less like my mother, who I saw was weak at the time. And so I started uh, dating this guy who had tried to get my attention for many weeks at this particular company. And we started going out. Things were great. First three months of the relationship, things I thought were fantastic. I mean, it was a level of attention that I had never experienced in any prior relationship leading up to that. And um, three months into the relationship, He called me very irate, um, very mad that I hadn't checked in with him that particular morning. And he was yelling, saying, you know, why aren't you at work? Why didn't didn't I hear from you today? One of the red flags that I had missed leading up to these three months was that the level of attention was intense. So we would talk, I would say three, four, five, sometimes six times even before I got to work, right? It was, okay, I'll call you right back. Okay, I'm going to call you now. I'm going to call you. But, and I, at the time I thought I got to pick up every call because my gosh, look at the level of attention he's giving me. But looking back in hindsight, it was because he wanted to make sure I said where I said I was at any given moment. Uh-huh. Um, and so it, it was this, again, it was at the time it, you're blinded, right? Because it's like, whoa, look at this. He's calling me all the time. I've never had this before. And so you're always making sure to pick up the calls on this particular morning because I was feeling really sick. I had started suffering from allergies and didn't know what that was. I'd never had it before. Thought it was a really bad cold. Called the office to tell them that I wouldn't be in. and went back to Ben, thinking I would talk to him at some point because we always did. And he was very irate. He slammed the phone down in my ear, showed up at my house within the, probably the next 15 minutes, brushed past me as I opened the door went into my bedroom and started rummaging through my stuff. So he's going under the bed. He's looking behind the curtains and the closet, very paranoid behavior, um, accusing me that I had had someone there that morning. And I'm sitting at the edge of the bed and I'm, I'm looking at like this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde person, right? And I'm saying to myself, my God, what I said, what is wrong with you? I said, I love you. I want to be with you. Um, nobody's been here. But the more I talk, the more I wake got. He came over me as I sat on the bed and he said to me, I knew you were too good to be through, true. And then he slapped me so hard and stormed off.
1: Mm.
0: He slapped me so hard that I saw stars. So I'm sitting there trying to compose myself. I'm crying and I'm trying to figure out what did I do to make him react this way? Should I have called him that morning? We do talk every morning. So I'm questioning myself. And after a minute or so, maybe five minutes or so, I said, no, I didn't do anything, I told the truth. So you know what, I'm done. I'm never letting anybody treat me that way again. Or so I thought. The weekend had passed, I went away to New York, I came back, my brother said that he had come by looking for me and left something for me. I went into the bedroom and it was two dozen purple roses, my favorite color. And I was enamored. I was like taken aback that this beautiful bouquet had been dropped off by him. I looked at the card. It said, I love you. I miss you. I'm worried. Call me. Because I had also turned off my cell phone. I didn't want to hear from him. And I turned on my cell phone at the same time. And there were a slew of messages from him. Call me. I'm worried. Please. I'm sorry. I could hear it in his voice. Right. And so I called him back. And when I called him back, he profusely apologized for the way that he had acted Um, but in part he also blamed me and I didn't realize that he was blaming me in part he said "Um, I love you so much that you made me do that the thought of you being with someone else drives me crazy and what do you do with that I'm 21 at the time I'm like okay he's right you know like I should be doing better, right? I should have called him. And so all those thoughts came back. I also thought about my mother in that moment. And I said, you know, after I hung up from him and I accepted the apology, I thought about my mom and I said, you know what? I'm, I'm not that bad. It's the whole situation. What just happened is not even close to what she went through. And I'm still in control because he apologized and he took elaborate lengths to apologize. My dad never really did that. So I got this, okay? And he said he's never going to do it again. So there's that. Many people ask how victims get into these types of relationships. And that's how easy the cycle can start. Because you accept that first apology. You believe them at face value that they're going to change. That it's not going to happen again. That it was just a slap. And it's not that bad. And the cycle just keeps repeating because it's a systematic pattern. It isn't something that happens once and then it won't happen again. If it happened once, it will only continue to grow from there. And it did over the next two years, the relationship became way more physical than I ever had dreamed that it could have been. Um, Again, always equating it to my mother's situation. Well, he's not beating me in front of the house. Well, he's not using weapons on me. It's just his hands. Um, you know, he never slapped me again because he was always afraid that, you know, I worked in a corporate setting, people might see marks and bruises. So it was always punches about the upper body, um, strangling sometimes, pushing, poking. Um, and so this happened, the emotional abuse ramped up, the, the verbal abuse ramped up until I got to my breaking point. The last night that he attacked me was because he was very angry about an old picture that he had found in a book. Um, again, he had come home looking for an argument, looking to take out his anger on me, um, and accusing me, as usual, you've been with somebody, let me check your phone, who was this, how long did you talk to them? And then subsequently, he started rummaging through some books, and out popped a picture With that was of me and my then ex-boyfriend in Trinidad sitting on the beach, looking very happy on the sand. And he flew into uh, this fit of rage and he flung the picture at me and he went into my kitchen. I was now living in a studio apartment, very long. So it's a kitchen, bedroom and bathroom. Nowhere really to run, right? And so he goes into the kitchen. I looked at the picture that he found, which again, an old picture that I'd used as a bookmark years, some years ago. And forgot about it. And so I'm trying to explain to him that that's what it was. It didn't mean anything. He comes into the bedroom for the first time with a weapon, a knife. And he says, I'm going to slit your throat and nobody's going to find you. And I believed him. At that point now, two years down the line, I am completely isolated from family and friends. I did not want anybody to know that this is what I was going through. This strong, vibrant, smart all of the things that I thought of myself, all of the things that people in my circle thought of me, um, I felt like the opposite. How, you know? I thought that my family would say, how could you let yourself go through this knowing what your mother went through, right? I just didn't want anybody to know. Um, so he came and straddled me on the bed. I had a day bed at the time and he presses the knife up against my throat. He's on all fours and he's saying, I'm gonna cut your throat, you nasty bee. He's calling me out my name. He puts the knife down, he starts slapping me, something that he had never done before since that first time. So I knew that this attack was different from all the others. Um, So he starts slapping me, spitting in my face. He, He takes the knife up again. He then points it to my chest. I, I might as well just stab you and leave you here. I'd rather watch you bleed to death than to know that you've you know, tried to shame me in this way. What have you been having phone sex with this guy? You've been making a fool of me this entire time. So again, just a level of anger that I had never seen from him that was just above everything else that had happened before. When he was done you know, taunting me with the knife, he would get up and pace the floor, yell profanities. And I made sure, if I, even if I cried, that I cried quietly because I didn't want my neighbors to hear what was happening to me. If they heard him, I could chalk it up to, you know, he was angry at a, like a football game he was watching, you know, like, you know, I can make an excuse for that. But if they heard me, then that would draw attention. And so I kept quiet as much as I could. When he was done, he started at about nine o'clock the night before and went till about two o'clock the next morning. Stop, go, stop, go. And then he just laid under my bed, like nothing had happened. Went to sleep. At about four o'clock that next, that same morning, I felt the sharpest pain from this particular attack. It felt like a dagger was piercing through my skin. And I'm saying to myself, okay, Laverne, you've watched enough law and order (laughs) and lifetime to know that something is terribly wrong on the inside of you, right? It's either you're bleeding internally, something might be broken, but you got to get help or you stay here and wait for him to get up and maybe start again and maybe finish the job the first time I chose myself I quietly got up got dressed and went downstairs I lived directly next to a train station so there were always cabs I grabbed the first cab I saw and asked him to drive me to the to the near the nearby ER which was about five minutes away from us driving there were only two lights between my apartment building and the the hospital when we pulled up to the first light it was red my abuser pulled up next to it he realized that I had gotten up got in his, cab, his car and followed, starts yelling, get out the effing cab. I'm going to kill you. Um, I need to talk to you. What are you doing? And I turned to the driver and I said, listen, that's my ex-boyfriend. And so for the first time I said it, that he was no more. I didn't want the relationship anymore. Um, I, I was still emotionally entangled with him, in love with him, but I wanted the abuse to stop. And I knew that if I stayed or if I went back, that that would not happen, right? It hadn't happened up until that point, and the next time I knew it would have been deadly if he had reached for a weapon this time. So I, I begged the driver. I said, "If you have to run the red light, run it, but please don't let me out of this cab." He listened to me. He ran the red light, and then my abuser started drag racing the cab um, to try to catch up and and be in line with us. When he saw that the cab took a left into the hospital, he sped away um, because I didn't realize at the time that I had power in what I could have potentially done. He thought that I was going to finally speak up and say something and that scared the hell out of him. So he, he fled. When I went into the ER, I told the ER nurses that I had fell in the shower and I had hurt certain places where I you know, mentioned hurt because um, I didn't want them looking at me differently. Right? Uh, when the ER doctor, however, came into the room, he um, took the x-rays out of the folder and he immediately said, who did this to you? He knew. And I clammed up. I was shocked. And he said, I can get you help if you just tell me who did this. And i that word help, Sarah, was the most daunting thing that I had ever heard. Because it potentially meant that the police were going to get involved, My building was going to find out what was happening to me. My job was potentially going to find out why I would come back to my desk, sometimes looking disheveled, even though I tried my best to to compose myself when I came back, if he had showed up randomly at the job to uh, accost me for the length of my dress, um, for, you know, what I was wearing, um, all of it, you know, just like I, I would just try to keep it secret my My school would potentially find out why I was on my way to flunking my first year of college um, because my focus wasn't there I, you know group assignments I was failing because he didn't want me ever combining with you know if if it was a co-ed group and a boy or a guy was there. He hated that um, and so I would always leave early or he would show up and ask me to come downstairs or let's go. it's time. Um, So again, they would find out that I was funk in college, uh, my family, uh, school. I just didn't want any of it. So I fessed up to him and I begged him. I said, please just let me go. Um, Somebody did do this to me, but I just want to go home. Not realizing that it was the most dangerous time for me. When victims decide to leave these types of relationships, it again is the most dangerous time because the abusers believing in their hearts that they're losing a level of power and control that they've had over you for many years or many months or many days. And they do not want that. Um, They'd rather see you dead. They'd rather see you hurt, or they'd rather you come back to inflict more pain for even trying to leave. And I was no different. Thankfully, I had been diagnosed with upper contusions and upper hip contusions, upper torso and hip contusions, which meant, and a gash on the side of my head, um, which meant that, um, you know, he had punched so hard that the inner flesh was swollen and bruised. And it could be treated with medication and ice. But a lot of victims don't get that chance to leave uh, and get treated and come back alive. However, As I said, it was a dangerous time for me over the next week or two, things were quiet. uh, And then he called me up one day, like nothing had happened, saying that he was going to come over. Over those next two weeks, I had had my locks changed. Um, Because I knew again that I was physically done with this relationship, but emotionally, I was still grappling with the decision that I had made. And he called me like nothing had happened. And I said, I said, you cannot come over. I said, my locks have been changed. And I said, you almost tried to kill me two weeks ago. And he said, in response, he said, you know, you looked for that. You know, you caused some of that. And that reiterated to me why I needed to stay gone. And I told him that I was through again. And he got very irate, and he said, "I'm coming over." I thought he was bluffing. He really did show up. He tried to break into my apartment um, with a crowbar. He cut the phone lines in my basement uh, because to make sure that when he got my apartment, that I had no access to the outside. And um, I finally called police when I knew that I could not handle this on my own. Um, he fled away before the police came because he heard me talking on my cell phone, which he thought would typically have no minutes on a Saturday um, and normally and it didn't. And I did not have any minutes, but I heard someone say in passing that you could still call emergency numbers, even though you're, you have no minutes at the time. And it worked. And like I said, the police showed up. He fled. I still didn't give him up. I, I said, somebody is trying to break into my apartment because again, I don't want to get him in trouble. I still love this man, <laughs> as crazy as it sounds. I just want him to leave me alone. Um, when he realized that I would now call the police if something happened physically, he then started stalking me, um, leaving nasty derogatory notes on my car, like really nasty notes that I, a, a car that I had borrowed from a friend. Um, she didn't want me taking the train. Uh, because she knew that he was on the loose. So I would use her car um, to go back and forth to work. Um, And he was leaving nasty notes on this woman's car first thing in the morning, I would have to fish off. So that's when I knew, I'm like, oh my God, he could be anywhere at any time and I am not safe. Um, So I finally filed a restraining order and that kept him away. But again, victims often do not get the chance to get that far, And sometimes, as we know, we hear in the news, right? She was trying to leave and he killed her. She was getting ready to divorce him and take the kids and he killed himself, the kids and her. Like we hear these stories and we think, oh, God, so horrible. What could have caused that? And it's not because it just happened. It's because these stories are brewing behind closed doors way before it ever makes a news story or a magazine or a newspaper story. And so that's why 10 years later, after this happened to me, um, it took a lot, of, a lot of years, a lot of months to sort of get back to the business of me um, through church and counseling. Uh, but I finally did that. And 10 years later, I was dared by some friends to take part in a local beauty pageant. And I did. Ended up winning the local leg and had to go on to the nationals in L.A. I ended up competing there and winning there as well. And now I have to pick a platform because I have these two back-to-back titles that I have to use my voice for. And domestic violence was an easy choice given my history. So for the year, I you know started these initiatives that I thought that I would have wanted. Because for me, one of the biggest things going through this issue is that at the time I went through this, I didn't even know what the term domestic violence was. And how many other people were there like me? I didn't know what resources were available at the time. And now having this passion title, I'm wondering who else didn't even understand or know what resources or help was available. So I did the year of advocating and the following year, built, you know that passion and that fire was still there to do this work. And so I, that's when I'm on the foundation that I run, Love Life Now. Um, which is uh, uh, un, uh, I'll put that up close, but it's a an awareness organization that really centers on education around this issue as well as highlighting the work that domestic violence shelters all across the nation do um, so that people can be in the know about the resources available to them. and we also point people in the right direction for help. So that in a gist is um, the background. Um, as you mentioned the book, uh, the book came about last year um, where a publisher friend of mine reached out to me and said, I think your story would be a good fit. He'd been following me on LinkedIn for all the years that we've done, you know, virtual presentations as well as in-person stuff that I would post there. And he said, I just think that you'd be a good fit for our publishing house and started writing October, uh, last year, the book was done in January and published this past June. And now we're currently on a book tour across, uh, the United States, I should say. <laughs> so okay. that's so me.
1: I, I need to know how old were you then when you um, got out of this relationship?
0: Uh, 23. Okay. It started I, when I was 21.
1: I was thinking that was the timeline. So you're 23 years old. You're still super young. You're now out of this abusive relationship. Um, can you date? Do you hate men at this point? What, what's your mind frame there?
0: I do not dare date. Um, Everybody, and even more so men, were hard for me to communicate with. And prior to this relationship, I was the social butterfly. Um, I got indoctrined under this mindset that men were, were bad. They always had a motive because that's what was told to me over two years, mm-hmm. we would be driving in, a, in his car. And if I looked to the right of me in traffic and there happened to be a man, he would then accuse me of inviting unwarranted attention. Okay, if we went out, he'd love to see me in the flirty, you know, get ups. If we went out to like a club or a party, but if anybody there came up to me it would be a problem for me, not them for coming my way. It would be a problem for me because I did something. I looked in their direction. And so getting out of the relationship and then, you know, simple thing is going to the grocery store and having a guy walk by and say, What's up, beautiful? or anything to just be nice, not pick, trying to pick up or good morning pleasantries. I would rush past people quickly. Because I was still sort of in that mindset, like, oh, God, they're trying to pick me up. And I remember what he used to say. It was that sort of mindset. So it took a while for me to even trust my instincts about people, especially men. Um, It took a while to get reacclimated with friends. Uh, They had wondered where I was. And I lied (laughs) about what that whole time looked like. It was like two years erased of my life. Um and so again, I don't I, you know, I eventually yes, did date, but it did take it did take some time.
1: So you seeing your mom go through this and going through this yourself, did you did any of your sisters or your brothers, did anyone else get in an in a, an abusive relationship? Or did so anyone can, become an abuser?
0: So I can tell you, that's a good question. I just had this question asked of me of, um on another presentation the other day. And There were five of us and we all saw the same brutal things. We all lived in the same house, but we all experienced this issue differently. So for me, I was the only one that became a victim. I have one sister and she grew up to be the person that says, try me. Again, she suffered the brunt of the child abuse at 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. She received her last beating at about 17 in public, he beat her in front of our house, ripped down her blouse in front of everybody, had to cover up and ran, and she never came back. Um, so again, she's the person that says, try me. <laughs> the oldest brother who was two years apart from her, he grew up to be abusive. Uh, my youngest brother, uh, he's also abusive. Um, and I have one other brother, and he is can't stand the idea of confrontation. He's he he's mild mannered. He loves to laugh. He's more about his pretty looks, <laughs> his handsome looks, and dressing up and looking good. He's and he just doesn't like confrontation. He'll he'll shy away from it any chance he gets. So again, all of us in the same house, all the children, and so that's why I make it a point to talk about child being a child witness and what that could look like. Because again, you tell yourself. Your child is three, four, five years old. And, you know, first of all, I don't let them see anything. They've never seen him hit. They've never seen him hit me. But there's emotional abuse involved and there's verbal abuse involved. And your child picks up on those behaviors. So even if they've never seen you get stricken before in front of them, if you go into a room with daddy and you left one way, happy, go lucky and you come back out and your mood and behavior has changed down to downtrodden and sullen, they read into that. And all they have to go on is their imagination. What happened in that room with daddy? Daddy is the monster. Mommy is. They, all they are left with is what they can imagine and conjure up about why it is you're feeling this way. So again, children often resilient we can be resilient. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes children that grow up in these settings feed on your trauma, take on your trauma, try to figure out why they can't stop the trauma. And that's too much of a burden to bear for any child. Mm -hmm. Um, you may say they're two, three, four years old and they won't remember. That's a lie. (laughs) That's an, that's a myth. Um, because children, they may not remember, verbal word for word things that are said. They may not remember every aspect of an attack, whether it be emotional, um, verbal or physical, but they take away certain things that they then inherit, that they then carry with them and translate in their own adult relationships or young adult relationships when they get older. Mm -hmm. So you think, oh, this is just happening here. And when they go to school, they'll be fine. But when they go to school, there are many times that I have presented for 13, 14, 15 year old children. And when, after I present, they're coming up and saying either me too, at least two to three girls are saying me too. My mom is going, or my mom is going through it and I don't know what to do. Or my friend is going through it and I don't know how to help her. So you think to yourself, They go to school and they're going to have these great relationships and it's separate from home. No, they're taking just as if you leave work or leave home and come to work with whatever's happening to you and that's bothering you or that's, you know, help, you know, not helping to have you be productive at work. What do you think it is for a child? Um, It's the same thing. And they will exert these behaviors or it will show up some way, somehow, whether through sickness. For me, it was asthma. I was asthmatic for years, and I didn't understand the the correlation between uh, stress and trauma and sickness. And uh, once I left Trinidad, came to the States, no more asthma. What do you know? No more asthma. And it was only till I did the research that I understood that it was in that environment that was I being under this type of stress that brought on these attacks. It can be in the form of children wetting their beds. Okay. It could be in the form of them um, acting out in school. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're doing and, and, and portraying what they see, what they know, how they how to react to things. So again, when you think that this issue is just something that you have to deal with and you have to be strong for, um, because you know, you don't want your children, it's being there, it's affecting them one way or the other, it's affecting them. And this is not to put blame on, on victims, but just to have you understand the level of how much this issue trickles down and reaches people that, you know, far and wide um, in your circle. So the I always like to put the onus responsibility on abusers because that's where it lies. Yeah. And even they themselves, They. This is oftentimes a learned behavior, just as how we learn um, love and what love is from our parents and early on in relationships. It's the same thing for abusers. They learn from their parents how to treat their partner. So if they're seeing violence, they might go on to, 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 to treat. That person the same way once they get into um, um, adult relationships themselves. So again, 90% of the time this is learned behavior. It isn't something that, oh, I just woke up and decided to hit my wife. Oh, I just decided to put down my 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 you know my spouse or my partner and you know have that be a repeated thing. This is something that again is learned. And if it starts one day, it's gonna continue the next day or the next week. Or, you know, there'll be nice times with the apologies that come the honeymoon phase, but then the tension will start building again. And you'll start walking on eggshells and the acute, you know, explosion will happen, whether it results in, you know, physical, physical abuse, choking, intimidation, whatever they, it will happen again. And that's just a guaranteed fact.
1: This sounds a lot like narcissism.
0: Yes, that's part of it.
1: It, I was going to ask, is that very common in domestic violence abusers to be a narcissist?
0: Absolutely absolutely. They believe inherently that they are always right. Number one, number two, they are never to blame. Okay. It's never their fault. It's always something you did that made this happen this way. They are great at making you feel like you're crazy. Well, you know what, why are you overreacting? I mean, I hit you the other day, but you know, get over it. Like that shouldn't be a big deal. I said that. No, you, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean it that way, right? So people think that they don't have to get, they have to get hit to be abused. But if there is gaslighting, which I just described there, making you feel like you're crazy and you're going out of your mind because you're, they're, they're trying to make you believe that your reality isn't real um, and that they know best, right? And again, quintessential narcissistic behavior in almost all abusers. It's like they operate from the same power and control textbook, um, even though the circumstances are different. And so what I want to say to that is that, you know, you may believe in your heart of hearts that you can change this person, that you can cry enough, and the amount of tears that they see from you will help them to understand that they're hurting you and that some, you know, it will stop at some point. Not the case. Okay um, That you know, they said that it's going to stop, um, and that they'll go to counseling or they'll go see the pastor um, and talk to them with you, or they'll buy roses. And this is different this time. And look at the nice watch or a necklace he bought, and things are great now. Not the case. Abusers have to want, just as you wanting to make the choice to leave after you get to your breaking point. They have to want to inherently change and do the work which means counseling to unlearn the things that they know to be what they value to be true about relationships and they cannot do it with you in the mix Mm -hmm. so best for you to leave okay get help for yourself to get unpack all the things that you've experienced in your in that relationship and best for them to figure their life out not a week apart at your parents' house, and then you go back, and nothing, nothing changes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Not them picking up the phone and calling and saying, "I'm so sorry. Look, come home. You know this isn't supposed to the way that we're supposed to live. Divorce is not an option. Your safety is <laughs> okay." Um, so put all that to the side as much as you can emotionally. It is hard because again, this is the person that you say loves you. This is the person that you believe is there to protect you. And yet they're doing these things to you. So how do, these, how, do you, how do you equate those two things when you decide I can't do this anymore? It's hard. Emotionally, it is hard to get up from under these types of relationships. It's not black and white that people, You know, why doesn't she just leave? Why does she stay? There's so many barriers and parameters that put people in this sort of binding sort of sense that they can't leave. So many. I mean, I, the, the list is, is long. There's immigration issues. You know, they, uh, someone comes here under the guise of, I'll marry you and you'll become a citizen. And when they get here, there's no marriage um, and the abuse ensues and they have no one. Okay, all their families back home. If you leave, if you report, I'll call the police and you'll get deported. That's not true. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. The police are not concerned with your immigration status. They want to make sure you're safe, but they don't know that all they're hearing is from the abuser. There are people in, in, in lesbian and gay relationships and they haven't been outed yet. They haven't come out yet, right? And the abuser says, if you dare say anything, I will tell your family who you really are. So they say, right? There's all these factors that go into people, people's reasons about why they end up saying. So I just asked that folks be a little bit more understanding um, a little bit less judgmental, and try to figure out ways that they can be part of the solution instead of victim blaming and shaming. Um,
1: I'm really, I'm really glad that you said that because I think that there is a lot of misconceptions with the victims, and mm-hmm. and with everything that you're describing, I I am absolutely amazed how you didn't let the victim mentality just completely overcome you because you could have, you
0: know, that and was I a- did. It. I think I did, I I absolutely believe I did. In the beginning, that's all I could be was the victim after leaving. I mean, I grappled with, did I make the right decision? Even after I left and he tried to break into my apartment and I was going standing up in a courthouse, filing out a, filling out a restraining order. I was grappling with whether or not I was making the right decision. Like, should I go back? Should I just go say I'm sorry wow. uh, that I did all this and just can you stop doing this? Because now you see that I can call the police. Now that you see that I can file a restraining order, will you stop? Like I thought about that often. <laughs> I can't tell you how much. The, I think, you know, a lot of the times people look at victims as one way, right? They're weak. They mm. are downtrodden. They, they, they can't make a choice for themselves. I was not that. No, I, again, I considered, I mean, I, for, on the, on the outside, I was good. <laughs> I, I was financially independent. I was on my way to get an education. I then had my studio apartment. Like I, I was, I was okay, but here I was still going through the same thing that the, the financially dependent person, the ened, uneducated person went through. Subsequently, God bless my mom. You know, our our my my father. He died of natural causes in a hospital room by himself at the age of fifty. Holy, okay. There's karma. Young. Um. He was very young. Um. And so then, when even when I look back and I think about this, my parents, this thing, this ugly thing that he exacerbated over our mother was happening to her in her 30s. And even before I came, her 20s, they met when they were 19, okay? She had a lifetime with this man, okay? And so uh, 19 years old, 30s, 40s, by the time we came around, right? And she's going through this thing, and it's like, my God, I am 44 years old. And my mother lived this for so many years. In the prime of her life. Granted, now she has, she went back to school. She became a certified nursing assistant. Um, She retired from a prestigious hospital in in Boston. Like she got life after what was deemed death. Okay. And she is now going to be turning 70 years old in December. And she is the most, one of the most vibrant people that you will ever meet. And I'm just so thankful for that every single day. Did so, she ever get in
1: another relationship?
0: She remarried. She, she remarried in 2016. Oh. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, someone that knew her for many, many years and also knew our father back then, too. Um, so, again, it's just, you know, what all's well quote that ends, not, not even ends because life is continuing all that all well that continues right, um, and so I'm just grateful for for her again her resilience because many people that know us from you know growing up uh, say my God she really sustained a lot um, and they cannot believe that she is who she is um, today unbelievable uh, but there is thriving after abuse and I think that's what the book what the way, even though the book chronicles being a child witness and what that can look like, being a young adult, getting into these types of relationships and what the red flags were that I missed, being in the relationship and what that entailed, leaving and what that continued that, that entailed and how dangerous it was, but then also finding myself again and then thriving after abuse. And that's the message. That's the light at the end of the, you know, even towards the you know middle, almost coming down to the end of the book, that shines, that I really want people to understand that all of this has happened. And I really tried to sort of, you know, each chapter or almost every chapter, if I, I outlined examples of emotional abuse, um, gaslighting, I try to put what those meanings are at the very end of the chapter so that folks can relate what they've been through and put a name to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about gender stereotypes and how you know detrimental those can be for children coming up. Um, Sometimes um, I talk about what the red flags are, what the CDC coins as domestic violence, um, because oftentimes we hear that word again thrown around and we don't know exactly what it means. Right. What does that even mean? So I really try to break down the book to be a resource for people um, so that they can, again, in real time, read and understand what the behind the scenes of this issue looks like. Um, even if they've never encountered it, encountered it in their life.
1: Well, I'm excited to read the book and I have two more questions. My first question is, did you ever report that ex-boyfriend
0: to the police? Yes. So, yes. So I got a restraining order. Um, so yes, I went to the courthouse. I got a restraining order after he started stalking me. Um, and again, that was the first time that I'd ever decided that, okay, I'm going to take this, what I thought was the highest level that I could. Um, and pray to God that he would adhere to it. And he did. But again, oftentimes people don't, right. you know, you hear that he broke the restraining order, there was a restraining order, and he didn't listen to it. And, you know, again, it's just, I, I don't think people understand the, the level and the hoops that you have to jump through to get your life back. When you decide that you are done and through with these relationships, it's again, not as black and white as just pick up and leave or come stay at my house or, you know, there's so many things that are daunting for victims when they get to that point. The unknown is very scary. Will he hurt me? Will he kill me? Will he kill the kids? Because he's threatened that before. Will he kill my dog or my pets? Like there are things that they have to think about way beyond just, oh, come stay at my house for a month. You know, you can, what happens after that? What if he was the financial breadwinner? Well, I can stay at your house for a month, but what does that mean afterwards? You know, I am not—I don't have a stable job to get an apartment. Where are my children going to go? Um, how am I going to feed them? Even if they're financially well off, they're be—they're too afraid of being ostracized by their community, by their by the the the, the husband's family. You know, because you—they've often been blamed. Well, you know, as wife, you know, you need to do better. Right. Right. okay there's community that they're afraid of, of 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 being shun away from um even if they're well to do because again this issue has no barriers okay no. it goes across the board right. wealthy poor middle class everybody gets affected by this educated issue. It
1: uneducated educated, female, uneducated Age across the matter. board
0: yep. does not matter one in every three teens one in every seven men and one in every four women will experience this issue in their lifetime. And those, just, oh, those are just the reported numbers. There are many people that do not report for one reason or another. So that, those numbers are far greater than what I just mentioned. So again, when you think it's not in your back door uh, that somebody in your circle isn't going through it, you're kidding yourself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This is everywhere. And again, your responsibility um, as a community member, as someone that lives anywhere, is how can I be a part of the solution? How can I find out what the domestic violence resource is in my area? Maybe I can call up 1-800-799-SAFE, which is the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and find out what the DV resource is in my area. Maybe I can then go and call them up and see figure out or just go on their website and peruse see what services they offer so that when and if something like this happens to somebody that you know you know how to help you know the best things to say and support someone Mm -hmm. not just oh it's not my business and she's too weak I would never let that happen to me Mm -hmm. domestic violence is everybody's business Mm
1: -hmm. And I, and I asked about your mom getting into a relationship and I asked about you dating, not because I think that a person needs a relationship to be fulfilled. Not at all. I think yeah. that if you are in a good relationship, it can enrich your life. I, I don't Absolutely. think it's necessary. So I want to make sure that, you know, when I asked that, I was just wondering if she could trust another and, and love another and, 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 enjoy life with another person.
0: Absolutely. Um, And, And you're right, you know, again, when you leave these relationships, it's not because you need, and that's something that I became aware of at 35, I remarried. Um, I've been married now next year, 10 years and I love my husband, but at 35, it was like, it hit me like a stack of bricks. I don't, I don't, I am, I am responsible for my own happiness I can't put that on somebody else. And that word that you used is enrich. He enriches me. He doesn't come. He doesn't make me happy. I'm responsible for that. Mm-hmm. So the thing I love and that I want to do, I'm doing. <laughs> I'm not waiting for him. Oh, I can't wait for him to come home because you know, going out on a date is going to make me feel better. Right. I feel like going out, I'm going to go out on my day myself. <laughs> we date obviously, but you know, I'm not waiting. I like traveling. He doesn't like long flights. Guess who's going on a very long flight every year for her birthday. <laughs> you, you know, his max is six hours, but I'm not going to wait and beg every day. No, I'm going to go. And there's going to be this, 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 this trust, this level of trust in our relationship that he knows that I'm going away for a week with my girlfriends and I'm coming back to him and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And then take our own trips together for our anniversary. And it works out really great because our anniversary is in August, my birthday is in September. So we do sometimes a rare, you know, uh, somewhere in new England, um, a staycation where we drive Mm -hmm. or we take a short flight somewhere and we go, we have a good time. And then I celebrate with my girlfriend and that's okay.
1: Yeah, that's cool.
0: But what I'm saying is that, you know, Down to the core, everyday stuff like, you know, I'm so stressed. I'm going to wait for him to come home and make me feel better. Meanwhile, he has had his own stressors that he dealt with during the day. He can't possibly come home and make you happy because guess what? He's not happy and he's depending on you too. So, So there has to be a level of understanding that you are both individuals with both individual needs. Okay. And again, you enrich each other, but you're still responsible at the end of the day to pick yourself up from out of the slump. And that can mean going for a massage. That can mean praying. I love to pray. That can mean reading. That can mean going and find some inspirational quotes. That can mean volunteering because giving giving makes you feel good. Whatever it is Mm -hmm. that makes you, brings you joy, do that. But don't wait for somebody else to, does that make sense? Yeah. And I don't want to sound selfish. No, you don't. about know. self-care. No. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. let's, do, let's, let's be frank. Um, and again, we, we do things together and, you know, like last night he randomly was like watching a movie and he's like, babe, come watch this movie with me. I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Good time. Take night randomly. Right. <laughs> cool. But I'm not waiting. Oh, I really want you to watch this movie with me because I'm into mafias. I really like mafia movies, me personally. Okay. He likes comedies. Okay, so we're not always going to meet in the middle to watch the same movie, you know? So there you go. I'll watch my mafia. You watch yourself. <laughs> I'm <laughing at> this. <laughs> I love it. I anyway. want to give
1: you a hug. Like, I wish you were in the same room because your energy is just amazing. And it what you do for me. people is just amazing. So, what would be, um, <clears throat> what are your last words for maybe not someone going through uh, actual abuse, because we've we've got the resources for them that we will share. How about if you think you know of a friend that might be in this situation that's going to be embarrassed, how how could we help them?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. And so to piggyback on what I was saying earlier about how you can be less, judgment- less judgmental around this issue and figure out a way that you could be part of the solution is if you have a friend that you potentially know is potentially going through this, again, visiting the domestic violence agency website in your area to find out what would happen if my friend picked up the phone and called. What are the steps? Because I want to make it as less daunting for her as possible. You want to get their number. You want to give it to your friend because you want to empower her, right? You don't want to say, girl, you need to leave, right? Um, because that is, that is a daunting thing. They can't see past what's happening today. And what's happening today is they've either just been attacked or they've accepted an apology and they just want to survive. They're in survival mode oftentimes. So you telling them to leave, that's, what does that even mean? That doesn't mean, that means a whole lot to them and some of it, it means nothing. Um, So again, you wanna empower your friend by giving them a domestic violence resource and saying, listen, I, I don't know all the logistics about what's going on. I'm not sure if even really if I should be giving you this but I think it might be a good resource that you can just look at when you have time. Just peruse and make sure you give them the link that brings them to the services page. Always bring them to the directly to, so that they're not perusing, they're not just looking and jumbling all over the place. So if they can see that they offer free counseling, that they offer safety planning, so that if they decide to leave, they know what to do, what papers to take, what papers to take with them, what, um, what, 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 who to have uh, as a contact emergency. Um, all of these things are safety planning. If they know that they have these services available to them for free, confidentially, that might make them or draw them, drive them closer to want to, to make the decision to do so. But again, you just saying, girl, I'm here, um, come stay at my house. That really doesn't, You know, be a support in offering them a ride. Say, I know he tracks your movements or you can't really leave your job. You know, if I come pick you up during lunchtime, I can take you, you know, be Mm -hmm. a support in that way. If if you decide to file a restraining order, I'll be there with you, right? Be a support in that way. If you um, need help with the children, if you need to go, you know, an appointment with the DV agency, I will take them. You know, offer support, always just be there, always let them know that you're potentially just there to help in any given way as possible. But again, giving them the DV resource is the first and foremost thing that I would always suggest, because then sometimes they don't even realize you're saying it's abuse but they don't realize it's abuse. It's like, you're overreacting. It's not that serious. But if they go onto the website and they sometimes, it sometimes it takes someone reading something in black and white to jump out. And this is what this book has done. I've heard for a lot of people is that they're reading and it's like, whoa, I didn't realize that this was this. If they go on the website and they read emotional abuse is this, they'll say, oh my God, that's me. Right. Um, And then that might, something like, go off in their brain and they're like, okay, I really do need to get help. So again, just offering the support and empowering them as much as you can. Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane
1: with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated.